0: Welcome everyone. Uh, welcome everyone to London dialogues. Uh, we are trying to create a series here, a platform for Indic voices in London. And, uh, we welcome everyone who's joined so far. We will be, there'll be a few more people trickling in. So, but, uh, harsh Raji will start. So what we have today with us are two investment experts, policy commentators, and now very proud co-author of much raved about book, a new idea of India. So congratulations to both of you, Harsh and Rajiv, please pick the book up and make uh, sure that covers. Uh, congratulations to both of you Harsh and Rajiv for uh, your publications thank and you, the first book you. and uh, much talked about and uh, getting a lot of praises and some criticism also, I believe. So uh, I'll, off the rack, I'll just uh, jump into these questions. So. I have been reading you, both of you for quite some time, you have been writing essays and articles and publishing in uh, very repeated uh, publications, how from there, this whole journey of putting that into a book came about? How two of you and INSEAD N- N- MBA and Columbia University MBA essentially into financial markets come together to put a book on a new idea of India? So. Uh... Uh, uh we started nilendra uh, uh as as writers as uh, columnists with different newspapers uh, mm-hmm. in fact i think we had published a few columns individually and then we started collaborating uh after we had met i think in 2009 and uh, uh then coming from the financial uh, sector coming from the investment world i think it just flows naturally in the sense that if you're an investor in india you're trying to make sense of the country from a macro perspective right. before you drill down yeah. to kind of micro themes, uh, industries and sectors. So mm-hmm. uh, both of us, I think had that kind of a orientation and also obviously a passion for India, uh, kind of a, a love for the country and so on
1: right. and
0: uh, as we were writing uh, then uh, there was a large collection of columns which we initially had thought that you know could make for an interesting anthology and as we started that project, then that kind of flowed into uh, something else. Uh, mm-hmm. It became much more expensive as the team sort of came together, and uh, the, it, it sort of evolved itself. I would say into what is now, you know, the book in everyone's hands. And uh, it was, I would say, a very organic kind of process. We never—I don't think either of us thought 10, 11 years ago that you know we are going to have a book in 10 years or something like that. Uh, you know, just flowed from like uh, our own thoughts into columns and uh, blog posts. And then from there into longer essays in some more sort of academicish type of journals. And then from there mm. some of our mentors like Sanjeev Sanyal and Amrish, mm. they actually also encouraged us that you should consider writing a book now. And that's how we kind of uh, uh, got the uh, confidence and idea to actually move ahead on this path. Right, right. So what is this idea of India that two of you are putting across and why now there's a time to rethink what is India and what is the idea of India?
2: Okay, so thank you once again, Nilendra. And uh, thank you to Gautam and Indic Academy UK for having me and Rajiv on to discuss a new idea of India book. Um, so I think any new idea, first of all, we say this is a new idea of India. We don't say yeah. this is the new idea of
1: India. The it's not idea. The idea.
2: This is our perspective, uh, you know, one of many ideas, but even, even a new idea of India always has to build on something which already exists, right? So in that sense, it obviously builds on, as we say, the civilizational heritage of the book. So it's basically a new tweak on old material. It's a new way to package it. And the subtitle of the book is Individual Rights in a Civilizational State. So that in a way, that subtitle of the book is a good way to start explaining what the new idea is. We basically are saying, that we have to look at, uh, in, in, social and political terms, citizens as individuals, as far as the government, the state, the law is concerned and not as groups society might see them as groups. That's fine. So that's the idea on the social political side and related to that idea is individual economic freedom, uh, which we covered in the second half of the book, which requires in turn, good governance, good state capacity, individual economic freedoms, that is free markets. We think is the best way to create prosperity. However, with a couple of caveats, you do need redistribution. The idea is the redistribution, such as good schools should happen through market incentives, like school choice. You do need good regulation and you also need something to leverage the size of the country. So while we are all individuals, you know, and there are some downsides to be a very giant country in terms of governance inefficiencies. There are also a lot of upsides if you play it well, for example. You have collective bargaining power in terms of right. incentivizing multinationals to invest in manufacture in India if they want this giant market so there is some some case for industrial and trade policies there. but broadly speaking uh, our uh, the general rule is to have more individual freedom both socially and economically but there are caveats on the civilizational side in the sense that you want to leverage the economic size of the country and on the social size you do not start poking holes into the very system into the very right. culture and the ethos of civilization rather that makes these individual freedoms possible uh, right. so that that kind of reflexivity uh, and struggling with that is what we try to convey in this book
0: mm-hmm. so yeah obviously the I- idea of any country is an evolving process you are not going to have a static idea for any nation at any point of time you bank your idea on a philosophy that it's a civilizational state here right so just to for the understanding of the audience, what do you mean when you call a country or civilizational state? And then I would also come and ask you about the counter question on that. So let's start with what is the civilizational state we talk about? Rajiv. In a nutshell, uh, I would say for a lot of people say or claim that India was created in 1947. Right. Before that, it was this collection of communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is a popular book called uh, I think attributing it to Nehru. The title is the invention of India. Right. Discovery. The, the uh, so no. So uh, so I think Shashi Tharoor wrote that book called the invention mm-hmm. of India. And uh, in in a way, it's like about Nehru's contribution and so on. Right. So, so the idea being that, you know, Nehru sort of had created the country, he gave us democracy and it all happened in 1947 and then 1950, the Republic was born and so on. Uh, but our thesis is that India was not created in 1947. India is a very ancient civilization, mm-hmm. uh, ancient culture, uh, or what we can say, Prachin, Sanskriti or sabbhita, right. Uh in Hindi uh so so uh, the the events of 1947 and 1950 were just one milestone in a very long history uh and and uh, the republic which was formed in 1950 even that kind of acknowledged the civilizational roots of the land that is bharat right so which is why we, we uh, one of the one of the kind of sections in the book is titled you know the idea a civilizational republic so in, uh, we think that India is unique in the world where uh, a civilization also coincides with a kind of a geographic nation state in the way mm-hmm. that India is, uh, uh, and it's a civilization republic that too is also unique because, you know, China is a civilization state, but it's not really a right. republic. Yep. Definitely not a democratic republic, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, there are hardly any other examples. You know, people can maybe, maybe you can say that Israel is another kind of civilizational Mm -hmm. republic. Japan probably is uh, Uh, can be called. uh, India is unique in the world. Sorry, which one? Uh, Japan, I was saying, can probably be called a civilizational state in some sense. Yeah, Japan, Japan, Israel. Yeah, a few examples like that. Yeah,
2: yeah. So just just, so, just, to add to yeah, what Arsh. Rajiv uh, said, so basically, uh, you know, one way to understand the word civilization is to think of the largest section of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, the largest coherent section of humanity, which is short of all of humanity itself.
1: Right. So wh-
2: why is that definition relevant? That definition is relevant because, you know, we often use the word the West, mm-hmm. the West as a civilizational construct, but the right. West refers to the United States, Canada. Western Europe, including the UK at the very minimum, if not also Eastern Europe. Yeah, and
1: and in in that
0: sense of term, West might also refer to New Zealand and Australia, which is not not Exactly. So
2: which is which has got nothing to do with the geographical West, Australia is very much included in it. That's a very good point. So therefore, the West is a civilization constant, but it is made of many nation states. However, India and China are the only large examples, the only relevant examples in which these large civilizations more or less coincide with one nation state. And then as Rajiv mentioned, even within those two examples, India is the only democratic republic. So India is the only kind of civilizational republic that we have, like France and the US are part of the West, but they are Mm -hmm. separate states. Right. Um, Even if Europe becomes or Western Europe or the European Union becomes kind of federal superstructure state in five, 10 years, they have Mm -hmm. a kind of centralized budget. Now that Brexit has happened, you know, the West will still remain that European Union plus US plus the smaller countries of Canada, Australia, and so on and so forth. Um, right. so even then it will not be kind of one civilization, although in a few decades from now, who knows? So in that sense, India is very unique and we, we, it's the reason why that is so important and so often missed is because, uh, you know, it is, it is for example, okay for Western liberal commentators and just the name with the way I'm using it, the Western Yeah, yeah, yeah. Western yeah. commentators, it sounds sectarian to a lot of people. It sounds narrow. It sounds to some people yes. it might, it might sound bigoted, right? so yeah and yeah, so financial times correspondents might write the west in a completely mm-hmm. um conscious mm-hmm. manner yeah right? and, but it's like like a say, very honest
0: like, manner like yeah, not beating de- 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 anyone but or the, yeah but
2: there's no connotation just a denotation just a matter of fact yes yeah uh, but if we write India, the civilization then you know uh especially off late the last few decades all kind of uh you know people start saying oh my god what is this person saying all the antenna go up so, sure, so it, there, sure. there is an element of what we assume, what we don't assume, and what we are normalized to, what we are used to thinking of. And therefore, mm-hmm. while, it was, while we say that the Nehruvian concept of India is not civilization, although ah. Nehruji himself saw India as a civilization, and this was right. not a very kind of, kind of strange idea in 1947, ironically, with the, with the so-called founding fathers of the Republic. Today, it's only kind of reduced to a BJP position. And my point is, that's good for the BJP, sure, politically, yeah. that's not good for India, if there is no consensus on this.
0: True, true. So one criticism of this civilizational state topic you picked up directly, that there's a direct denial that there was no state, yeah. per se, before 1947. The other criticism generally comes when somebody talks about civilizational state or Indic state, per se, uh, is that, are we just holding on to our past and not trying to move ahead? What's the point of just harking on to that past? So how do you address that criticism is there's a positive contribution of being a civilizational state or if I could rephrase that, how does it matter to govern a nation? So, I I think on holding on to the past and stuff, uh, that I think allegation doesn't really hold water. Mm -hmm. Because if you're talking about, uh, you know, fundamentalism, let's talk about the fundamentals. The very opening chapter of our book. We uh, quote we quote from the Rig Veda, the mm-hmm. creation hymn as it is called,
1: right. uh,
0: the Nasadiya Sukta, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, if you read that hymn, uh, it is full of skepticism. Right, and it is essentially saying, you know, who knows whether even the gods may not know that where yeah. did this world come from, etc., etc. So it is it is full of this, you know. It, as we write in the book, it would even gladden the hearts of even physicists and scientists.
1: True, that True. this is
0: their uh, kind of a you know what what is considered today as a religious scripture yeah right it, it's uh, it's full you know, of scientific uh, skeptic, skepticism right it ends with yeah, saying yeah, that so we we okay, never know yes exactly so yeah. so so if we if we adopt that kind of a mindset are we really becoming static i don't think so mm-hmm. true uh, in fact in fact we are we are engendering a certain skepticism about the world and at a high level if we have that kind of a mindset Automatically one becomes oriented more towards what, what again, in the book, we've described as having a slightly scientific orientation bent of mind, as opposed to a dogmatic bent, uh, where, you, where you are automatically more open-minded, right? You're saying that this can also happen and maybe that can also happen. So let's see how it works. That's the kind of approach. So yeah. I don't see, I don't necessarily see harking yeah. back past as something regressive and the way mm-hmm. it is portrayed by a section of commentators or analysts. Yeah, def- uh, yeah. So definitely, uh, pa- when you have a past, uh, what somebody would say, harking back to the past, yeah, so, can also be said as taking a strength from the past and building yeah, so, upon so it. At high level, philosophy is certain, certainly something. You know, I think I think you know it's completely in sync with uh, scientific temperament. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what is or uh, you know, uh, but then again, that's high level philosophy. Uh, yeah. uh, you can always. You can always find one or two people who are pulling in something absurd and then saying that, you know, this is what we should do because this is how it was done two thousand years ago hey, or five hundred years ago. But naturally yeah. I mean that's that's where we have to apply our sort of skeptical hat, wear our skeptical <laughs> hat and apply our common sense and see that, you know, maybe it worked then, it doesn't work now.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and and take a slightly rational kind of approach like that. True, true i'll
2: I'll just so, add to I'll just yeah, add harsh. one correction to Nilendra what you mentioned earlier so it's not necessarily that we had a unified state earlier so the way, the sentence that we mm-hmm. use in the book is india is an ancient civilization that is being converted into a young nation through yes. the instrumentality of a democratic unified state so you know mm-hmm. earlier we, culturally and more importantly civilizationally we were one even if we were under different raja's or for the yes. Tata Nawabs, even if he spoke different languages, but you know, you could go from Rajasthan north to Badrinath, or you could go to Dwarka, and you would feel that you are in the same uh, Dev Bhumi. Right. But it's Right. In, right. So that's the, the, the the you did not need to have one state the way China, for example, mm-hmm. at least Eastern China did more or yeah. less. They also had civil wars more or less for two thousand years. So the Chinese uh, civilization history is very much state centered. Whereas Indian civilizational history is not at least a unified state-centered. So right, there are different right. and there are differences the way it has kind of it's very path dependent. Now, on to the point of why, why it matters, it matters because anybody, any any person or individual or community or nation or civilization that does not understand its history will make mm-hmm. mistakes about the future. Like we have to understand True. where we are coming from, to understand where we are going, where we are going. From. I mean, for example, if you discuss any controversial issue today, like you know like the CA debates rocked us before the right. before the rights. How mm-hmm. do you take it? How do you take a kind of a, how do you see the wider arc of history if you do not understand where we are coming from, right? I mean, you can otherwise people would say, let's contextualize based on these legal promises, which are also interpretations, you know, any legal promises and interpretation. Why not understand, for example, even pre 47, there's something called
0: partition. But, happened. But, but, harsh, if I can make a point there. Okay. Uh, but we often see that the criticism comes from that perspective that why are we looking at So when you put CA, a lot of people critical of it refuse to look even beyond 1990s and forget the civilizational history. They say what's happening now, like five years, so, ten years. So my,
2: my point is, my reply to that is very simple. First of all, people do not have to agree with you or me or Rajiv or Gautam, right? right? But yeah. the point is very simple this, even if you want to think that you want to oppose the CA, the best way to oppose CAA is to by by appealing to the best instincts of Indians, which is rooted in their civilization heritage. If you if you give them if you give them a a very legalistic argument uh, for a constitution that has been amended hundred times and that was under a dictatorial emergency for two years, and the words socialism and secularism were added to the constitution when the opposition politicians were in jail, it is difficult to have the moral weight as opposed to if you appeal to their moral instincts grounded in thousands of years of their religion is a very minor part of it their broad yes. civilizational world view actually so even mm-hmm. if you want to oppose it that's the best way to oppose it uh, so you we need we need that common lingua franca that understands which is why i'm again saying this civilization heritage should be a bipartisan issue ideally it should not be uh, a single party issue because then within that framework we can disagree
0: Right, right, right. So, uh, earlier you mentioned India is a unique country in the world being a civilizational republic, right? But there are other civilizational states. How the this identity of civilizational republic fits into the worldview in terms of uh, when you are uh, kind of doing business with other countries or interacting with other countries? So, relation between two civilizational states or relation between civilizational state and nation state. Does that come into picture? Should
2: I take that, Rajiv?
0: Yeah, go for it. Okay.
2: Yeah, so, um, so I think that's an excellent question of all kind of angles of foreign policy, economic policy and trade. I'll just give you a small example, right? When, when Narendra Modi uh, tries to counter China, putting a string of pearls around India, and he, for example, mm-hmm. goes to Mongolia, one of the common points he brings up in Mongolia is the Buddhist heritage of the two countries. Right. Right. So when he tries to attract tourists from Japan. You know there is a Buddhist circuit being kind of made, just analogous to the Hindu Char right.
0: right.
2: So there, there are uh, even with, even with Sri Lanka.
0: There's also that one example, Arch, where, where uh, I think I think the UP government reached out to South Korea. Yes. Because yeah. uh, I think uh, many, many centuries finished. or millennia ago, there was a princess from South Korea who had, uh, by way of marriage, come to India. Yes. Uh, and, and the UP Chief Minister invited uh like a delegation from south korea to come to ayodhya so my point is the westphalian system
2: of modern nation states which has extreme benefits in many ways is still a very much mm-hmm. a 17th century invention it first happened in europe then after colonization and decolonization ah. it spread to the rest of the world right? right that that is the modern nation state system we live in and it has mm-hmm. many benefits but people's emotional histories their sense and sentiments are by definition older than that right especially for right. Old Asian and European cultures, where they remember things from a thousand, two thousand years ago. Even a mm-hmm. place like Persia, which remembers its pre-Islamic history. Right. right? So there, 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 even today, India says it's it's a bit of hyperbole, but India and Iran have civilizational links. It might not mean right. much today, but they still mm-hmm. say it. Right. Uh, so I, I think it, it it is basically soft power in a way, and no soft power is useful unless it is you know incorporated within a sub, within a set of hard power. But once the hard power is there, the soft power is the extra bonus, you know. Like as people right. say in parts of India ki, ek ka note, so like a krupia or ek pesa pesa kame rupia, right. rupia say, kam but peses sa avaz oti. So it's right. the it's it's the extra linkage. Uh, mm-hmm. which which is often the difference in key in key relationships. Right.
0: Right. So this is all at a very strategic level, right? On the governance and level and all, on relational. Example, Sure You were saying something, Rajiv. No, and and I was saying, Nilendra, let me give one more example actually. Something Mm -hmm. I came across recently on how uh, this civilizational uh, angle manifests itself. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't even see it in front of our eyes. Uh, So, you know, if you look at the official Gazette notifications of India, there are two dates that are given. So, the every Gazette notification has two dates one is the Gregorian calendar date. Right. And the other date that is given in India's official gazette is yeah. the uh, Shaka calendar. Yeah. So, so right. that calendar actually is still followed in parts of mm-hmm. Bali and Java and Indonesia. Right. And uh, it is it is in a way the national calendar of India in a sense. It's it's it's, it's the mm-hmm. I mean we don't follow it in practice in Indian life, common life in India. Because we are all on the Gregorian calendar system, right? We follow the months right. from January through December days, uh, from, uh, Sunday through Monday, obviously, and so on. That's the Gregorian system. But there's, uh, there's an ancient calendar which India had, which is still mm-hmm. the Gazette. Much in much use and in a lot, lot of date, part
2: of India. Yeah. Yeah. So, so just a couple of points. There. First of all, some of that calendar dates in India is still used for Puja Padati pers- uh, yeah. and secondly you know how does civilization state matter a very simple example is we allow nepali citizens to work live and study in india right we don't allow, we don't allow it for pakistanis to even visit much easily and bangladesh is a halfway case closer to pakistan but it's much more liberal in terms of travel because mm-hmm. there is less less uh, kind of tension between india and bangladesh right. but only only nepal gets all its citizens to live, yeah. work and study in India and now take a wild guess why that is the case. You know, why we, we might not like to say it and kind of acknowledge it openly. But there is a clear reason why that is the case. And even Bhutan is a much smaller example, but Nepal is the best example of that.
1: Yeah. And,
2: and, and yeah. Sri Lanka, even Sri Lanka, which tried to be very kind of cozy with China, the way uh, Nepal tried the last few months ago. Mm-hmm. Even Sri Lanka, I must say that after the terror attacks that I think happened last year, uh, uh, uh there is a there is a clear bipartisan consensus in sri lanka which kind of moved towards india and away from pakistan yeah. and to some extent even away from china so right. you know the point is these emotional connections are or have even without rajiv and me calling it a civilizational state have yeah. always been there that is why we've treated nepal very differently than any so, other country
1: uh-huh.
0: and 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 you know when was when was the gazette of india formalized right this format of the gazette of india it was formalized in 1955
1: yeah. Right. Uh, uh, Jawaharlal
0: Nehru,
1: right. so, Nehru was the prime
0: minister of India. Right. Nehru was the prime minister. Why? Why? Why did they feel the need to include this in the gazette? Oh yeah. Well, but, on that matter, the cover that, of your book is yeah. it's exactly. a civilization. Yeah.
2: Right. This is uh, from the fundamental rights section of the original constitution. Right. Right. It's Ram Lakshman and Sita.
0: Right. Right. So. Uh, it's it's not something that we dropped. Like the idea of the state is not yeah. something we dropped immediately Absolutely after when it happened, happened in not. nation. It it it's more time. of a recent phenomena when people yes. are questioning that idea.
2: More of right. an 80s, 90s thing when it happened, and then there is a counter reaction now in the last few years. Right, right.
0: So what I was saying is that this is all at a very strategic level on a governance level. What does it mean to be an individual, and how does it impact somebody in the 21st century living in India? Is that their nation has been a civilizational republic or uh, probably a civilizational federal structure, essentially, in the earlier times. So how does it affect them in a tactical way in their day-to-day life, What, how their rights are affected or what responsibilities do they take when they're part of the civilizational state?
2: you know it's a fascinating question and there are all kind of kind of counterfactuals around that but let us yeah. say for a moment that we were not united uh, as a, you know this in the civilization state multiple things could have happened you know mm-hmm. um, first of all we would never have been able to leverage our size for economic investment we could have been much more like sub saharan africa in that sense you know because only african yeah. africa signed a free trade union literally last year i think or this year right with Nigeria being the final person who signed, even today it will take many years for it to properly fructify. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's on the economic side. On the political side, imagine if West Bengal was one country or Gujarat was one country, it would have been much easier for these so-called countries then to be dictatorships. You know, in a way, in a way, the div- diversity and democracy in India, uh, diversity including within the Dharmic sphere, has actually made us much more amenable to democracy including yeah. our own ancient heritage again from the Lichavi republic Vishali, so on and so forth yeah so, so it, you know the when we are saying the world's largest economy you know will be the world's eco- economy the largest number of people as global economic convergence happens mm-hmm. india and china were the largest economies for most of history so right. then that, so who do we credit we credit our size who do we credit for our size contrary to popular jokes of indians having a lot of kids actually Indian, Chinese, and European populations over 500 years as a rough proportion is the same. Yeah, it's Actually the Europeans rose first in the first few centuries and now Indians and Chinese have kind of risen and the overall proportion has remained the same. So why right. is India one entity so relatively easily? Mm-hmm. I think therefore the credit to that has to go to the civilizational heritage and therefore the life of an individual could be much better in India than say isolated Pakistan in 10 years from now, or it already is, Right.
0: you know, it's yeah. much
2: easier to do a tech startup in India, given the large market.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you
2: can't mm-hmm. do a small startup for different, different countries that easily.
0: Right, right.
2: So there are many, many ways to think of it. Rajiv, I'm sure has many, <coughs> you know, I don't know, it's an interesting
0: question. It's a yeah, counterfactual. You, you have something to add, Rajiv. <laughs> no, so I think it's just, uh, I think individuals should be allowed to view themselves in whatever way they please, uh, you know. If I really had to boil it down in very simple terms, I would. That's what I would say. Uh, and and individuals should not be forced uh, by the state to self-identify as this or that. You know, for the purposes of the state, uh, every Indian is just an individual. Instead yeah, of identifying uh, as, let's say, a member of a religious group or you know something else. Uh, so, uh, because I think that idea is actually in, uh, I would argue in perfect consonance with the kind of dharmic identity, the dharmic sort of ethos of India. So let me phrase this next question is going to be a challenge for me to put this question together. But uh, when we talk about civilizational state, we are talking about a broad common identity. But within that identity, when we are moving to individuals, right, we are taking a very classical liberal approach of every individual having very independent uh, rights to them, right. Whereas when you talk about a kind of common identity, that's a more of a left liberal approach that individuals more than their own personal freedom belongs to a group which should have rights, right? So uh, while we're talking about, bear with me, okay? I'm just trying to put this together. So while we're talking about a big identity here and talking everyone as a group, we are still going to a very classical approach of individual freedom. How you bring these two together, talking about identity, yet individual freedom.
2: So I think the very simple way to look at that is, you know, you need the big identity to protect the mm-hmm. small individual identities. Mm-hmm. Um, the different it's not left liberal, because left liberal group says within a country, they look at different groups. Right. We are, to, we are talking at the meta country civilizational level. So for Mm -hmm. example, this is the kind of debate that would happen between, you know, as you said, classical liberal, like, you know, somebody, Robert Nozick on the libertarian side versus John John Rawls on the classical or more of a soft left liberal side. And, uh, you know, Robert, uh, John Rawls would say everybody should have all these rights, but no identity as such, you know, and then Robert Nozick would say which state would kind of, you know, impose that order. And mm-hmm. then, I, then people like me and Raji would jump and say, "Okay, if there is a state that imposes the order, what underlines that state? What keeps that yeah. state going? Right? So there, okay, there is a state which hires police and which makes sure that classical freedoms are maintained for most of the people. Uh, then, what is that that keeps the state together, the people together, that whole machinery running? Does it break down in some extreme cases? We actually write that in the book in a section called Kashmir, Pakistan, and Karl Popper." Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there are. So the way. So it is. There is a lot of overlap with classical liberalism in the default setting, but right. it is the. It is in the exceptions where we disagree from the classical liberal, or even more broadly, the liberal framework or terminology itself. I mean, right. except if you were, if, except if you were to include people like Karl Popper in a broader sense, mm-hmm. because we say we reserve the right to not be tol- uh, tolerant towards the intolerant. You know, if if the, if the overall setting, the framework, the operating system that lets these individual freedoms kind of flourish and prosper, if that right. framework becomes under attack, and not just under trivial attacks, this, this, not, mm-hmm. this should not be an excuse, it should be used rarely, but like a real attack, for example, the way the war is happening in Kashmir, right, that is constant terrorist aversion from the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, there are real problems, or for example, the Maoist in which Mohan Singh called the biggest internal security threat, Right, sure. real problems like that, you have to be at least ready, not happy, but at least mm-hmm. be ready to suspend individual freedoms to defend individual freedoms. The way uh, that sounds Orwellian, but that's what Abraham yeah, Lincoln did. Yeah, yes. That's what Abraham Lincoln did to, uh, in terms of suspending habeas corpus for the yeah. US to win the Civil War, and the US then became. The largest guarantor of individual freedoms in the coming century, you know, after uh, after desegregation and all that. So, so there are no easy choices, you know, in that sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm.
2: But when there are clashes, it's not to answer your question. It's not a classical liberal philosophy in that sense. There are exceptions where it breaks down and where we disagree with that worldview. Mm -hmm.
0: So, will will it be safe to say that uh, what's happened when you are looking at a broader civilizational identity? It is actually taking away the smaller fault lines, which probably give people more freedom to move around in the larger sense of the world in within that construct. Right.
2: Right. Raj, Raj, you want to
0: take this? Rajiv, you are mute. You're on mute. You're on mute, Rajiv. Yeah, yeah. So again the question the question becomes, you know, what uh, what what are the fundamentals of the civilizational entity that you're talking about?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if we agree. That the fundamentals are about freedom, right? About liberty, and that's the case that we've made mm-hmm. uh, in the book. That in a sense we are, we are I mean, in, in, a, in a, put put slightly differently, the book is about reconciling individual right. rights with in the ancient Dharmic ethos. Uh, so if you agree that that is the case, then I don't think there's mm-hmm. any problem because I don't think that's that that sort of mobility that you're mentioning, individual yeah. mobility or freedom is in any way in conflict with uh, the ethos of India. No, no, true. I, I was making that point. I, that's what I was saying. No,
2: I, I understand, yeah. Nilendra, I'll answer your question. So basically, uh, you were saying that in a way, do we want... Harsh? Yeah, exactly. I'm. Uh, can you hear me? I, I yeah, think yeah, there's yeah. a
0: lag with Raju. Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah, I, can know, I, I can hear you guys. So I'm saying, uh, Nilendra, you're absolutely right, that in a sense, we actually write about melting pots and salad bowls in the... Yeah. yeah. And so what we are, what we are saying is, the government should see people as individual citizens. Societies should be free to see them as groups. Mm -hmm. And and when when you see people as groups, you have some kind of moral pressure on them not to be too mobile, not to be too flexible, not to cross certain boundaries. But our case is so long as the government sees them as individual citizens and if there is a revolt or if there is some churn or change and reform internally within society after that extent, we should not Mm -hmm. stop it. It does not necessarily mean that we should even necessarily go and do it. Mm-hmm. so so we are not necessarily arguing for an interventionist state we are saying yeah. the government should not at least slow it down right. because the natural process of you know freer markets education see also what is happening is we actually use um the character of a young woman to say to say that you know she studied in one city and she's born in another city she's working in another city she's married to a person from yet another city and we're right. we, are, we are using real-life modern examples from India because mm-hmm. what has happened is it's very easy for me to go from Kolkata to Mumbai to Bangalore to Delhi to Hyderabad and Pune um, because, you know, there is a certain kind of national culture that has developed because of technology, right. Right. because of movies, and... because of digital, because of uh, a general sense of who we are, the same kind of uh, cultural references. IPL is a classical example of, you know, uh, you, you and I can kind of just meet and have yeah. a small ban- banter over, and kind of have a mock fight over the teams we support, and right. that kind of common culture is a very, you know, recent creation. In 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 a way, uh, the earlier the common culture was at the elite level. For example, mm-hmm. the the I E S and before that, even the Congress, the Indian National Congress from 1885, was basically a collection of lawyers and uh, educated professionals at the very high level from Calcutta, Bombay, Madras, and Delhi. Right. Right. And, uh, and what happened is only after Gandhiji did it become a mass movement and yeah. then the ICS and then the IES, you could have a Bengali guy being posted in Gujarat or vice versa. And now mm-hmm. that thing is multiplied by orders of magnitude and with the private sector thrown in, that it, I don't, I don't know where Nilendra is from. I actually, I've, we've spoken before the call went live, I never asked you which state you're from, yeah. it's perfectly fine to ask, but I definitely right. did not ask you your caste or your background. Mm-hmm. or you know it, it, and not that I was even curious, it did not even kind right. of cross my mind. Right? I, right. I was much more interested right. in what you're doing in London right now. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that that change is something that even it's not gone through all of India yet. So let's not mm-hmm. overstate the case, it's something that's happening. But it is right. much more than 30, 40 years ago. And the thing that Raji, when I keep on saying in the book is that the economic and social are related because they reinforce each other. So you have more right. economic freedom and prosperity, you have more social churn and mobility which in turn creates scope for a larger national coherent market. Because if you talk to marketers, they would say till 20 years ago, they would say, you, you need very different state uh, advertising campaigns. Right. You know? right. And that, that might still be true for parts of South India or Bengal. But mm-hmm. maybe maybe from UP to Madhya Pradesh to parts of Maharashtra and Gujarat, I'm not. I'm just making a, a hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may not, maybe a similar campaign can now work like Deepika Padukone and Virat Kohli might be national icons now right, right. So, so in in that sense our common imagination is much more common than it used to be and therefore True. there, there was the, and across not just caste or region but across gender like women are much more freer mm-hmm. we talk about like a don't ask don't tell incipient sexual revolution in india which in turn undermines ah. kind of caste boundaries and regional boundaries so there are, there's an entire kind of churn that's happening in india which is you know in a very indian sort of way where you know the parents you know, you know, it's right. like let's not. We don't talk too much about it, but that churn yeah. is happening, you know, and I and I think so, that's very fascinating because Indian um, most people who write about India are often not in India, right? Uh, yeah. And Indian, Indian academics are, we are so in the Indian environment. we kind of miss it, but yeah. I think it's a fascinating social change accelerated. Five to three to f- ten, five to ten times faster compared to what happened in the West 100 years
0: ago. True, true. No, what they are saying um, is very relatable for me because I have lived all over India, and at no point when I moved to study somewhere or to work somewhere, I even had a sense of uh, you know the idea that I'm going to a new place, like yeah. in the sense I had when I moved to London or when I moved to Malaysia to work. Uh, you know, that I mean, to sense be never made, happened when I moved to Bangalore to work. So the way it works now is, uh, you know, you're living in Calcutta, then let's say you move to Bangalore, you know, your bank remains the same, your retail yeah. store is the same, your telecom service provider is the same. So yep. and Amazon and Flipkart is the same, you know, yeah, the you're same. the same kind of brands. So in a, in a kind of consumer sense, you know, right. you, are the, you feel like you're in the same place. Well, was that true 30, 40 years ago? Probably not. Right, right. Right. So it's it's at that level also. And I think another is that level is that we have a very underlying sense of being part of the same group, right? So we probably not verbally state that we on a very surface level, we might see Bihar and Bengal and uh, Karnataka as different state. And we see people as differently. But at an underlying level, we have a sense that it's the same place. I'm just going to another city in my own country. Among my own people. Yeah. Right. So from there on a very uniting factor to we'll move to something which gets people in the knots. Uh, you have a chapter called uh, Saving Secularism from Secularists. Uh, let's talk, I'm not posing a question, let's just talk about Indian secularism here and what's happening there and what's wrong, where we have gone wrong with the secularism in India. no so uh, i think the single biggest problem with secularism as it is practiced in india i mean yeah. there's no problem with secularism per se but the right. problem with secularism as practiced in india and as propounded in india is that uh, is not you know in, in in law and in practice it is about treating different religions differently right uh, and and uh, you know is that really secularism it's it, it's, it's actually a very avelian Construction. Yeah. Of what so I is, have a very strong opinion on this subject,
1: right? so I'm yeah, just so
0: putting is, that out there. What is properly understood as secularism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't even think you know all the Western sort of writers, commentators who keep sort of hyperventilating often on the subject, I don't even think they know what is actually happening. Are they aware of the kind of religion-based discrimination that Indian governments have been practicing for so many decades? Right, and actually right. the chapter that mentioned Milindra, uh, in the book, the third chapter, the title is Saving Secularism from the Secularists yeah. and uh, we tried to make a pretty pointed case that uh, it's time to change this and it's time mm-hmm. to move to a regime of individual rights where uh, Indian citizens have uh, equality before the government. They have the same laws and the government should not differentiate between citizens. Right, right. So where, where I come from on the topic is uh, the very fundamental secularism ca- come, came into existence because in West, you had uh, countries or states having a common joint on the top, like religion and uh, governance were both managed by essentially the same set of people. And thus the idea of secularism came in, which essentially was never the case in India by introducing secularism that's my take on it That by introducing secularism you actually brought government into the religious space and then you asked government to somehow do monkey balancing between different group of people and thus you just sabotage secularism what was existing in essentially
2: no see i see i i've heard that point often and i disagree with that point there's a okay. people who say that basically secularism is a christian or a post-christian idea yes of course it kind of the way the word the practice came by separating religion and state this, in European yeah. countries, especially after the Catholic protestant civil wars ah. across the continent, right? So that's, mm-hmm. the, that's, the, that's the genesis of secularism. But the reason why India still needs some separation of mm-hmm. the right word in Hindi is Nirpeksh, not Right. It's, right. it's Panthanarpaiksh and I think even Yogi Adityanath makes that point and many BJP politicians have made the point. You cannot be Dharmanarpaiksh, you cannot be value neutral. Yeah. You, you, you have to be path neutral, there's a difference. And the reason I'm right. saying is, it, the Abrahamic religions have anyways been in India for at least a thousand years, if not more, right? I mean, right. almost 15 centuries, if you include mm-hmm. some early Christians and Muslims, almost 2000 years, um, right. depending on what date you cut off. So once you have that set up in India, you need a apparatus so that all religions are kept aside as for the government is concerned. And then people say, well, even assume for a moment that no Abrahamic religions. You know, King Harsha used to give grants to Buddhists and Shaivites and Vaishnavites in Prayag or whatever. Well, the point is, though, even the largest Indian states are not as large as the state today we have, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were not as intrusive and powerful, and they did not have as much tax revenue. So even if if you ignore Abrahamic religions for a moment, proselytizing to Abrahamic religions, Islam and Christianity. Uh, and if you do not have a separation of religion and state, so let's go by the, the meaning of the term and not the term, because the term has become toxic. Even Rajiv right. and I, while we talk about, you know, saving secularism, secularists, we are not very enthusiastic about the term itself because the term has become toxic. So right. let's talk about saving, just separating religion and state. So let us right. say, even if you did not have Abrahamic religions and there was a Hindu government, um, would you want them to control temples, even if there was no Muslims and Christians? yes or no no if no then that is separation of religion and state so right. then, you know, that is secularism genuine secularism and if so yes that's... and if yes then uh, the question is uh, would we end up uh, favoring one kind of temple sect sampradaya over the other you know so so there are there are deep issues but you are right in the sense to the point that by having this perverted definition of secularism we ended up destroying it
0: but yeah so that's the point i was trying to make that by putting the secularism in this sense there we have actually yeah. brought government into the setup yeah where they were... the, i was just
2: disagreeing with the part of the christian origin because even the united right. states has a separation of religion and church but mm-hmm. it does not do uh what india does right right so in fact in many hindu temples are much better run in new jersey than they are in new delhi true like you, you can go to hindu temples in america they're beautiful they're gorgeous Right? Mm-hmm. they're absolutely well maintained no problems at all and i'm sure in the uk as well yeah uh, but de- but definitely in the us like i'm i've been astonished of course indian americans are a very rich community and all of that but i was mm-hmm. blown away by the beauty of the temples how clean they were how well managed they were right and so there is something to be said about just separating these two realms even if it is a kind of post christian idea because anyways abrahamic thought processes and religions are in india as well now for a long time yeah yeah. Um uh, but what is very important is a secular bol bureauo or a minority appeasement bhi kar rahe. so it's like right. it's like it's like we are being beaten for opposing this form of secularism, and we are still paying for these minority religions. its like it's a, it's the worst of both worlds like you are paying the sure. je and you are no, being called a bigot and you'
0: being called a bigot right, right.
2: it's the worst so of it both worlds. it's really
0: yeah it's a perversion and it is unfortunate that this has been mm-hmm. been allowed to continue for so many decades and that's why that that word has become very toxic today. Actually, true, true. Right. So from there, we'll now try to move towards wrapping this discussion up. And I want to touch upon the last chapter of your book, which is decolonizing the Indian state. So first thing, why do you think that we are still colonized, and in what sense do you use that word? Uh, so well. Uh if you look at the structure of so the state obviously you know there's the executive there's the legislature there is the bureaucracy there's the judiciary so broadly mm-hmm. speaking if you say there are, there are four organs like that mm-hmm. uh, let's leave aside the intelligence agencies army and so on for now right but, but just looking at uh, uh, you know the focus on that last chapter is in the is on the bureaucracy and judiciary so our cases that the bureaucracy in its current form today in india is in need of dire reform primarily because the complexity of the economy has increased manifold over the last 70 years right but the selection procedures the training and sort of appointment procedures have not really been that way mm-hmm. uh so we moved from like a completely closed or autarkic kind of economy to a uh, quite a, uh, quite an open economy uh, moving more and more towards like a Liberal market model, and mm-hmm. uh, that requires special uh, special specialty kind of training, special skills, uh, and so on uh, for the bureaucrats who will staff those regulatory bodies. Uh, so, for example, can you in a bureaucratic reshuffle have someone who's let's say a steel secretary overnight mm-hmm. become a finance secretary, and then yeah. the human resource development secretary or the education secretary now? Uh, then becomes the commerce secretary in charge of all the trade related issues in india negotiating sure. with different countries and managing very complex uh policy matters so mm-hmm. so that but that is how these uh, 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 uh members of the bureaucracy yeah. move around at the senior levels uh and it's based on things like seniority uh there is a very large in kind compensation element there is not a very large cash compensation element at the higher levels. Right. So, if you're a senior bureaucrat, you get a nice bungalow, you get probably some cars and other amenities, mm-hmm. uh, household amenities, and personal staff and those kind of things. Uh, right. But, but your uh, kind of cash component of your compensation is much lower. So, the mm-hmm. case that we are making is uh, we should have a higher cash compensation for the top level of the bureaucracy, and at the same time, the lower level of the bureaucracy is overpaid. If you compare the kind of tasks that the low-level bureaucracy does to what a private sector job would pay, uh, Mm -hmm. it is actually a very well-paying job for the kind of role that it is, which is why you see a scramble in India whenever there is some recruiting going on for entry level posts in government, then even, even advanced degree holders are applying for these jobs. And then the media headlines come that there's so much joblessness that even a PhD guy is wanting to become a clerk somewhere.
1: Right, uh, but, right, But
0: the reason that happens is the the, the pensions, the benefits, the guaranteed employment system uh, in bureaucracy uh, makes these jobs actually very lucrative. You don't have to do much. You get paid very well, especially if you're living in a uh, you know, small town in India and in, like the hinterland uh, where mm-hmm. the cost of living is really not that much compared to larger cities. Uh, so right. because of all these reasons, there is a need for dire, dire need for administrative reform. And uh, we haven't done too much of that. If you look at over the last 60, 70 years, there have been so many committees that have looked at this and said, you know, this needs to change. This needs to change, but who's changing it? Uh, I think probably the Modi government has made, they it, taken some initial steps into lateral entry, uh, in an organized fashion. And now we have some people coming in, but, uh, you know, for all these years, not much has really changed actually on that front. And we are continuing right. with the inherited sort of steel frame, which has now become a steel cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that is why we say that the state needs to be decolonized and then that is right. the bureaucracy. So if we talk about the judiciary now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the great things that has happened in the last 25 years is kind of the decline. I would not say the end, but the decline of dynastic politics in right. the legislature and executive side. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, till 1997. There was pretty much one family which had run the country, right? There was hardly anyone else who had been prime minister, who had controlled the levers of power in Delhi, Uh, but we've seen that change in the last 20 years. Uh, But if you look at the judiciary and if you look at the appointments process, again, in the higher echelons of the judiciary, the appointments process is not very transparent. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are, there are hints of nepotism there uh, where, you know, if you connect the dots on who knows who and who's related to who, you quickly find that, uh, you know, someone's nephew, son, daughter, not too many daughters and nieces, unfortunately, because it's highly male dominated even till Uh date. But there are all these kind of relationships, actually, there are intermarriages, and it's like a cabal onto itself, to be very honest. Uh And uh, that appointment process in the judiciary uh, needs to be overhauled, Uh, the Narendra Modi government had tried to overhaul it, but then it was shot down uh by the judiciary itself which said that it, the, you know the overhaul is against the basic structure of the constitution right though. yeah <laughs> so so like that, that's the of, part of self invented topic yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so so both those aspects actually uh because of the appointments and incentives at play our thesis is that uh india has a highly kind of uh still a pretty colonial sort of uh, approach and that approach needs to be reformed and made more democratic right so that's the point on uh, more of a administrative decolonization uh harsh do you have anything to add on to that uh, probably on ideological no,
1: decolonization
2: no, I, I do but i think gautam wanted to say something first
1: yeah actually yeah this uh, very important point i wanted to uh, ask the question on and i think mm-hmm. rajiv you've just touched upon it the administrative reforms so whichever area i look uh, at in you uh, know when i look at india that's digital payments, it's uh, startup scene, agri reforms uh, recently. There's so many areas uh, to be very happy about, but there are a couple of areas. Uh, and one of those, um, is administrative reforms. The size of the government actually hasn't really reduced. That's the area of despair. If I, if you look at it from my perspective, so well, I think I'll, I'll, that's I'll, the I'll, point that you brought in. I would, uh, I would uh, just say, uh, actually, Harsh,
0: you want to talk about the government sizing and resizing and all that? Okay, I'll that's, just very quickly, answer,
2: I'll, I'll very quickly answer uh, first Nilendra's uh, point. Uh, I'll just briefly first add to what Rajin basically said. It's not only very colonial, the state, it's also very centralized. So, right. what has happened within the Indian government is even though a lot of power has been devolved to state governments, and we can discuss that, uh, there have been some setbacks as well, but broadly it has been devolved, it has ne- not gone down to the local level. And even where it has occasionally gone to the local urban level, very, very occasionally, not compared to anywhere else in the world, in any democratic part of the world, it has absolutely not gone to the local rural level. And what I mean by that is, the very term of the IES officer in local parlance remains collector. You know, collector is from the, pre-col- from the colonial time of the person who used to collect agricultural taxes. Now, we don't have agricultural taxes, there are no taxes in the rural areas, that's part of the problem because then anything that comes from the top they see is as manna from heaven and therefore there's a lot of corruption not a lot of accountability there are no local taxes and hence there's no local buy-in uh, because i've worked in rural areas the largest i think the biggest problem is the local panchayats don't have any local taxes worth talking about and so there is no real accountability to say Ki tax diya, wo sarpanch kya kar the idea is some money has come from the top and even if the sarpanch has kept half i am getting the rest of the world is getting half that is better than nothing right so the, it is yeah. in, in political economy public choice it is called the fly paper effect even if some stuff is flying the rest is sticking and that's fine anyway so coming back to the broader point first of all of uh, decolonizing our thinking i think one larger point which kind of steps back from this chapter is we say stop using left wing and right wing <laughs> you know these are these are terms come from the French Revolution, the French Parliament, and even the Western American model more generally in India does right. not apply, you know, all mm-hmm. the debates of gay rights, abortion and all that are either not so important in India, or actually the so called right wing has done slightly more than the so called left wing. I'm not saying sure. the so called right wing has done absolutely amazing, depending yeah. on one's point of view, but it has, uh, these are these things don't apply in India, if there is a Sunni extremist in India who is against women's rights in many ways. I'm just giving an example. I'm not picking on yeah. any community, but let's say, you know, statistically he does not like the BJP and he's mm-hmm. a, he always votes against the BJP. So is he right-wing or is he left-wing? You know, it, it, it does yeah. not make any sense because his worldview is, we would call it social conservative uh, maybe right. to the extreme, but if he's always opposing the right-wing party, he's not right-wing, right? So these terms don't matter that much in India. India is, as you said, a civilizational state until the moment there is no consensus on that point uh the civilizational party which right now is the bjp that is the vehicle of that uh you know is called the right wing party that's a bit like saying uh, you know uh, indian civ- indian civilization is right wing to be indian civilization is uh, to be a right winger a civilizationist you know and that is why there are so such imp- very frustrating but also very impressive debates within the so-called indian right wing because yeah. they are not debates between the right wing they're debates within the indian civilization because right. on the on True. the other side, as you rightly mentioned at the beginning Nilendra, there are people who are denying that it's a civilization yeah. at all. so with with that audience discussing what should happen going forward is almost futile, right? And vice versa right. for them, if they see rightly or wrongly, yeah. I think wrongly the word civilization as a mortal threat. Now, on the point of what Raji mentioned about the state, we want the Indian state to be uh, not existent or small in most areas. But where it exists, it needs to be much bigger, stronger, and more effective. What I mean by that is very simple. As Rajiv mentioned, hinted about the bureaucracy and the judiciary. I'll add a very simple point, policing. Again, there are are not enough police officers and definitely not enough people arrested, incarcerated in Indian prisons as a percentage of the population per thousand. India is much below the median. Uh, Some place like America is much higher than the median. I'm not saying more is better. But right. clearly, in India, there is a, especially in rural areas or smaller towns, there is a sense of reliance on self-policing. Now, right. broadly, in nineteen out of 100 cases, it actually works very well.
1: Mm-hmm. Indians
2: are remarkably peaceful. If you walk through a Brazilian favela or slum, whatever they call it, uh, I mean, I've been told by my friends, a lot of rich people get mugged. You can be a very rich Mumbaiker and walk through Dharavi, you'll be fine in most cases. Yeah, you know? yeah. India is a remarkable place in many ways, but. What happens, especially where there are not many eyes on the road, it's not safe enough. Many uh, local norms, often patriarchal norms, get um, forced on people, women, or anybody who dissents in the name of a cup, panchayat, etc. There is uh, not enough policing state capacity. Right. Uh, so for example, the government should focus on that as opposed to running hotels, right? Mm-hmm. So the broad so when people say big government, small government, that's not the question. Uh, in many ways, the number of government employees per lakh in India is actually very little. True. Uh, so we need much more uh, expenditure on hosp- healthcare, education, policing. Even though healthcare and education can be done with the incentives of a private sector, but the government has to subsidize it for the poor. But what right. we don't need are, for example, you know, massive. Uh, Rajiv and I, the very first column we wrote together, besides one small financial column, was why does India need so many ministries? Uh, and we actually explore that in the book. And part of the reason is lack of internal democracy in Indian parties, but a large part is it's just make, it's just make work for, uh, ministers to be accommodated. You know, you have so many, approaching yeah, right. the same area and there is deadlock. Now it might be less of
0: a problem in this government because the PM mean, very there is very far from. No, there, is, then, there is no chemical and fertilizer minister in the UK, for example, right? There is, the, there is a business secretary, right. there is a chancellor of the exchequer, but there's no, yeah. for example, steel minister. Steel no. secretary, or whatever, right? Right, I mean, these are decontrolled industries. The government really doesn't really have a role uh, directly, at least. Uh, no, I, mean, I mean, there have been such
1: nationalization some, uh, in the last five years. See, these
2: ministries are to control this PSUs, those which remain from those in those sectors, like sale or whatever RCF, you know, this fertilizer factories, and they they have basically become rent seeking. Only recently, I just learned, Rajiv, that. Jindal Steel or JSW if i'm not wrong just recently got the right to build steel for indian railways uh, basically sale for so all these decades right. after liberalization was, was basically had a monopoly on uh, making yeah. uh, basically steel uh, rails for indian railways and they were uh, not
1: they were not satisfying the requirement so they were not, they were not able to supply the uh, required number of rates. So, but, like, but even if this, right? even if they were
2: competition okay, competition, okay, okay. But what uh, is, steel is a
0: very interesting uh, what the proper, in a so what is so i think we are going, going right? in a rabbit hole here. <laughs> now we will keep going that path so no, sorry yes, yes. So, i just want to add one thing nilendra mm-hmm. that's okay with you i mean mm-hmm. to summarize i would just say you know we have to be very conscious of what is the proper role of government Right. So right. True. Why should and the Indian government become like an corporate? Right. Mm-hmm. Like why are we why are we allowing the government to become like Tata Group, where you know one company the Tata Group is selling to another company the Tata Group. <laughs> true. True.
1: Right. Absolutely. So uh, we have we almost. Can, if you allow our time me here. one question, yeah, on. uh, yeah. I think uh, this there were two questions uh, I wanted to ask. One was about the size of the government, which you have answered. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, just the variation of uh, that question is that the government is big in areas where it should be small. And I think uh, Harish you touched upon it. You know, why should we be? Uh, why should uh, government be running hotels or running airlines or selling? You know, even BSNL, for uh, from my perspective, is not required. You should, government should not be in business-to-consumer services. It's very bad at doing consumer uh, businesses, running consumer businesses, and it's not required to be in those businesses where it is supposed to be big, like policing, you touched upon it. And forget about just rural areas. You know, if you look at the recent riots in Bangalore or Delhi, the police capacity is just not there to be able to respond to you know somebody, uh, a large crowd comes in and burns down the police station, which modern country would tolerate it. And we don't right. have the capacity to handle that. So policing needs to be enhanced. And maybe we should cut down on agriculture procurement. Why should we have so many collectors and why should a collector of a district be involved in procuring grains? That's just not I think that's where it should so I, I just wanted your thoughts on those. Uh,
2: no, I, I think the point of policing and especially in the context of recent uh, riots or the disturbance in Bangalore is an excellent point. You know, I was reading about these uh, terrible tragic terror attacks in Europe the last few weeks and you would read the interesting thing is, you know, at least as an Indian, I noticed was somebody press some button for a police emergency and the, and the police was there in like two minutes. And I was like, even in Hindi films in scenes, they don't come in two minutes. Right and my point is imagine how many lives were saved because the police came relatively quickly and gunned down these uh, dastardly terrorists and imagine we had scenes of in delhi riots with one person with a gun out that that became a headline photo in in bangalore there were there were people who had actually burned on a police station then they thought that they were doing a favor by actually protecting a temple or something, right? So these are classic use of (laughs) capacity, I fully agree with you. And then on the last point, procurement, I mean, Rajiv and we have have written about agricultural reforms that just happened this year. Massive, there are still still much more to do. Uh, But yes, I think in the short term, I think the government has actually increased procurement to kind of offset the political risk of the reform in the short term uh so you know it that's the economy is never economy it's always political economy
0: right so now and Raji, we'll try to wrap up before we do that i want to ask you start uh, from the people who are trying to read this book or the readers what are the key takeaways from this book that they can expect to get so your summary your your
2: so I would not give a summary. I would simply say, if you want to really understand as an Indian mm-hmm. or a non-Indian, as a resident Indian or a non-resident, you know where India is coming from and it is going, uh, You know, mm-hmm. may I dare say slightly arrogantly on behalf of myself and Rajiv, that it's a very comprehensive book. You will definitely disagree with many parts. That's fine, right. but we mm-hmm. have tried to be very rigorous in our research and have tried to kind of make sure that we footnote the last, anything possibly controversial, double checked it. We've given it mm-hmm. a lot of thought. So I and really, there is really no such book on in the market, so to speak, which covers a wide uh, range of areas like this one. So we've tried to present really? not, the, not a manifesto and agenda, but a way to think of all these related areas.
0: Rajiv? Mm-hmm. Rajiv, anything you want to add to that? No, and if I may say so, I, I think Harsh is uh, absolutely right. I think, you know, this book is like a crash course on the history and future of India, uh, if I may say so. Uh, so, you know, anyone who has a passing interest in India, who's interested or even learning deeply about the future of the country or mm-hmm. uh, the past of the country and where the con- country's headed in the future, if you want to learn, learn about that, get ideas on how to think about that, I think the book offers all of that in a variety of domains. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I I think, you know, uh, any, any India watcher, Indophile would find this very interesting, I think. Right. So, thank you both of you to join us, and uh, it was really wonderful talking to both of you. And uh, I look forward to reading more from you guys. And uh, good luck, good luck for your book. So, thank uh, you. thanks, Gautam, for joining in. And uh, thank you, again, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Gautam, for inviting us again. There are questions you may drop in, and okay. we'll take on a live chat or somewhere further yeah. again. We you get your responses from these guys. If there is anything you want to follow them on uh, Twitter, probably if you want to ask them
1: directly any questions. So thank you everyone. Thank Thank you. you. Bye -bye. Bye. Bye Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks.